Hey, Next Picture Show listeners. Are you in Chicago? Are you a little tired of listening to our disembodied voices and ready to actually see those voices come out of our faces? If so, you should come see us record live at the Chicago Podcast Festival on November 19th. We'll be at the Steppenwolf 1700 Theater, which is a fairly small, intimate venue, at 10 p.m. on Saturday night. And we'll be doubled up with the folks from the Booth One podcast, so you get twice as much podcasting action for your dollar. Tickets are available at chicagopodcastfestival.org. We'll be trying a different, livelier format and trying to get you involved, too. So we hope to see you there. Very difficult to keep the line between the past and the present. Do you believe that someone out of the past can enter and take possession of a living being? We may be through with the past, but the past is not through with us. Welcome back to The Next Picture Show, a movie of the week podcast devoted to a classic film and the way it's shaped our thoughts on a recent release. I'm Tasha Robinson, here again with Genevieve Kosky, Scott Tobias, and Keith Phipps. In the first half of this conversation, we talked about My Own Private Idaho, an early Gus Van Sant film that had him digging deep into the obsessions and compulsions of a Portland street scene that fascinated him. Van Sant spent a fair amount of time talking to real hustlers to inspire his work, and he based the role of Mike on an actual street kid who almost wound up playing the role. And while he was shooting, River Phoenix, Keanu Reeves, the musician Flea, and various crew members lived at his house in Portland in an ongoing house party that was apparently so chaotic, Van Sant moved out of his own home for a while. All that immersion certainly reminds us of the story behind Andrea Arnold's American Honey. Arnold, the British director of Weathering Heights and Fish Tank, wanted non-actors to play most of the roles in her film. So she went on a cross-country journey hunting down kids for the parts, hanging out in Walmart parking lots and Florida beach parties at spring break, getting to know some other rootless kids who had the vulnerability she wanted. And once she'd selected her cast, she took them on a 12,000-mile cross-country road trip, working from a script, but also shooting real conversations and interactions on the road to build up a world that feels real. American Honey stars first-time actor Sasha Lane as Star, a young Texas woman whose meth-addicted mother died and left her without resources and in an unpleasant and potentially dangerous living situation. So when a young man named Jake, played by Shia LaBeouf, cruises through her town and invites her to join a traveling crew of magazine sellers, she leaps at the chance to hit the road. Like my own private Idaho, American Honey is heavily episodic, and it veers sharply between dreamy and very practical down-to-earth tones. It covers a group of young people living a free life on the road, but being exploited for profit and using drugs and alcohol to take the edge off of any worries about the future. Like my own private Idaho, American Honey perpetually lives under the threat of violence, but it doesn't really materialize. There's plenty of emotional brutality, but the worst never happens. These aren't films about the horrors of homelessness and youth, but they aren't idealized, sunny portraits either. They're both about people on the cusp of growing up and claiming their own identities, and they're both about how journeys accelerate that process. They're also both about unrequited love and the endless frustration of days full of boredom, mostly filled by emotion with no outlet except colorful self-expression. And they're also both about people hustling to survive, in different ways, and with more or less skin in the game, but certainly out of desperation in both cases. It's a business opportunity. We go door to door, we sell magazines. We explore, like, America. We party. Come with us. so what did you guys make of American Honey? I'm staring at you, yeah, Genevieve, because yeah, I know the answer to this question. Yes. Oh, I just love this movie, guys, so much. <laughs> and, and I will fight anyone who doesn't like it, Scott. <laughs> <laughs> well, I'm not going to I'm not going to say I did not like the movie. I, I had more of a mixed reaction to the movie. But I think you probably would fight that pretty strongly, too. To be fair, this movie is like so in my wheelhouse. It's like my wheelhouse was built to uh, <laughs> accommodate this movie. It's a lot of movie. Um, and there's a lot to unpack. And there's a lot of things about it that I admire a great deal. And a lot of it that I think falls pretty flat. But if I were to, to speak about it generally, I think it has what I call sort of a foreground 
background problem, which is the same kind of problem I have with the much acclaimed Chinese director Zhe Zhangqi, whose films in total will tell you in their backdrops a, the entire you know history of modern China, but the things actually happening in the foreground are banal and, and not nearly as compelling. And I felt like that was the story with this movie too, that, that I was seeing parts of America or a vision of America that was often quite extraordinary and certainly rare, but that a lot of the action that was happening in front of it was extremely contrived. I have mixed feelings about this movie. And and part of it was it is a disappointment in relative to the movie I kind of built in my head when I first read about it at Cannes because it seemed like my type of movie in, in a very big way, sort of a expansive road movie um, about people who are adrift. I mean, this is my thing. I, I like this sort of thing. And I just don't know that it got, perhaps it's a problem with my own expectations, but I felt like I was kind of hearing the same chords strummed over and over and over again in this film, uh, the same sort of like melancholy notes struck without much movement in any way. And somewhat, in some ways, I think that might be the design of the film. So again, it might be a matter of expectations, but I was weirdly untouched by it, even while I admired it. That's because you guys haven't been a teenage girl. I, I mean, I, I, I also have been a teenage girl and I also loved the movie. So I don't I mean, I don't know if it's a gender thing. That's something I'd really like to hear from our listeners about. Explain to me as someone who has never been a teenage girl. What is the teenage girl factor that I, I'm missing? The the infatuation with the Shia LaBeouf character or what, what am I missing here? I mean, I think that that's a big part of it. Uh, for me, I didn't identify particularly closely with Star. It, this this was not a movie that I recognized myself in strongly, and that's why I connected to it. You know, I was never I was never this poor. I was never this pretty. I was never this reckless. There was never a time in my life when I would have willingly jumped into a a van full of strangers who looked really, really smelly and grubby, mm-hmm. and one of whom one of whom greets her by offering to have sex with her in a fairly crude way and then immediately whipping his genitals out. I, I mean, as a teenage girl, I would have run screaming. So like the the feeling of infatuation, I guess, with uh, the, you know that that teen girl having stars in your eyes as you kind of like set your hopes on somebody who isn't as connected to you. Like, I think we've all felt that, but it's not such a large thing that it defines my connection to this movie. What what made this movie for me was not a sense of identification with any of the characters. It was the sense of immersion. It was the world that the film built up over time and kind of the alienness of this world to me. And that's something where I jump in on what Genevieve said about you need to be a teenage girl, but where she might mean that authentically for me, it's it's a joke. I don't think you need to be a teenage girl to to identify with this movie. Were you, were you serious? No, I'm, I'm, I'm mostly joking, but I definitely felt a very strong connection to the star character without necessarily identifying with her experience. But the way that she interacts with the other young people around her and how those interactions are influenced by her relationship with Jake as well as where she is in life and where she is socioeconomically and how her interactions with women change. She's just such a fully realized character and I see so much in that character about what it is to be a young woman, kind of regardless of the specific circumstances surrounding that. And I don't think that men can't recognize that or can't appreciate that. And I I was being glib when I said that, but that is why this movie spoke to me so strongly. I mean, for me, it's just it's about being in a being in a place that I've never been and will never be and feeling it so strongly, like feeling feeling the realness that Arnold creates around these characters and around these situations. I was just really taken by it. Hmm. It wasn't a realness thing for me. I never felt all that that real to me, the situation. Uh, none of the scenes selling magazines, uh, none of the scams they were pulling felt remotely plausible to me as something that anyone ever buy. That was one of several elements that kind of threw me in this film. Another one is, frankly, Sasha Lane, who is a really striking presence. And I know she's not any professional actress in any way, but in general, the contrast between the presence of professional actors like Shia LaBeouf and Riley Keough with all these non-professional actors, I found extremely jarring. And and again, Lane is vulnerable in a, in a way that the 
rivals in some ways River Phoenix and my own private Idaho, mm-hmm. but I, I don't think the performances are. Yeah, and uh, that was the thing for me about the film generally is just you have this mix of professional amateur actors. You have this uh, mix of a vision of America that's tied to, I think, a lot of contrived action. And it seems to me that the seams really just show throughout the film. It's not integrated in any way that felt that cohesive to me. But, you know, as a lumpy experience, it's still kind of intermittently thrilling. And I would actually push back a little bit on the magazine scheme because I think it's important thematically because Sasha Lane's character, a star, is trying to figure out what her place is in a capitalist society, right? In the the ethics of that. And she's being trained by Shia LaBeouf, who is doing absolutely anything he can to get Mm -hmm. a sale. And he's he's telling all sorts of stories. And he's a master at playing to people's weaknesses. And I I never bought him as a master, though. I never bought him as persuasive. I, I, I I did in the sense that he would be a guy who either would tell you, I, I thought the stories were fairly persuasive, and even if they're not, he's the type of guy who's so persistent that you would buy a magazine just to get him the hell off yeah, of, out is, of your house. And so, uh, but I, I like the idea, uh, the concept of these kids selling magazines for one, because, you know, who, who reads magazines anymore? They're, it's a dying medium. So to add that, that extra layer of desperation onto it, I thought was kind of choice. Yeah, I don't want to dwell on the negative because there's a lot I liked about this movie. Yeah. As far as the realism of it goes, I, I can speak to that in two ways. One, it was based on a magazine article, which I don't want to get into because we're going to hear a little more about that later, but about what the actual magazine selling crews yeah, but, are like. But who reads magazines? <laughs> and second of all, I bought a magazine subscription from a kid on a magazine crew back in college. Um, and he, like in retrospect, it's one of those things where it, it takes pr- a lot of time and a lot of perspective and reading this article to realize that that was what was going on. Hmm. But he was out on the street with a bunch of other kids selling magazines and he he straight up scammed me. He was cute. He was charismatic. He had a good story and a fast line. And he had a way of making like making the idea of subscribing to a magazine. I mean, granted, this was back when people still read magazines and when people actually theoretically subscribed to magazines because you got them for like a quarter of the price as if you were picking them up one by one. But I did not realize that I was being scammed until kind of the final moment when he was asking for payment. And I realized there's no reason to believe I'm ever going to see these <laughs> magazines or this kid again. Mm-hmm. Um, and it just when I saw this movie and I, and I read about like what where these people came from and how they work, like so many tiny little things fall into place. You know, it's like a couple of the other agents are really rigid about the, the, the five, the five sales steps and all this. Shit. So they'll pick a spiel that's like. Some sad shit, like, mama's got cancer, or my foot is falling off, I'm trying to get my life back together, you know, I got a little lost there in my teens, and I'm really working on myself, man, and, oh, you know, my dad, he died in Iraq, any sad spiel, and they'll just say it over and over and over again until it's meaningless. This person, this person doesn't give a fuck about magazines, right? They want something for me. So, if I'm a G, I'm gonna figure out what that something is, and I'm gonna work that. Yeah. That's a power agent. Here's the thing. Star doesn't care about selling magazines. Like, she never actually makes a legitimate magazine sale in the movie. When she does, she is making a sale in another way. She, like, the the magazines are just an add-on, basically, to getting to spend time with her. And... Star doesn't fall in with this crew to make money or to get by. Like we see at the beginning, she is self-sufficient. And yeah, it's like not a great situation she's in, but she gets by. She's there to escape, to be free, to see the world. Like that character is so strongly associated with the natural world, whereas the Shia LaBeouf character is so strongly associated with capitalism and civilization and consumerism. And I think having them sell magazines just kind of heightens the separation between what they are really in this for because it is such a frivolous and unnecessary thing and it it is just kind of another hustle but it's a hustle that she doesn't need because she can get by in a different way 
well, you you vegified that get, getting by in a different way, but a lot of it involves putting herself in peril, mm-hmm. sexual peril yeah. specifically. Well, what's what's behind that? Because is she conscious of that, or is she so naive? Is she naive that about what what might happen to her in these sort of situations? I think she partially thinks she can take care of herself, and partially every time she puts herself into serious sexual peril, she's doing it aggressively, like she's flaunting her bravery and her the way she ignores danger in order to to either throw it in some she she throws it in jake's face Mm -hmm. when she goes off with the texans in the car she's throwing it in the face of whoever that is at home we kind of talked about that we've kind of got a rocky's daughter slash sister question going on about who exactly she's escaping at home but like she's clearly trying to get away from that guy when she jumps into this van full of smelly hippies with their junk hanging out of their pants she (laughs) she really does seem to either not be aware of the danger or just not acknowledge it and frankly like very early on when she first has that encounter with the the member of the troop who propositions her and waves his genitals at her i had that feeling that i had at the beginning of the movie victoria that was just like why would you do this like like what is wrong with this character that they would make this choice and as we got deeper into the film and the sexual threats never paid off either for her or for anyone else i started to feel really safe in this movie mm-hmm. in a way i don't generally feel safe with women women protagonists because it became very clear to me that this was not a story about how can we degrade this character how low can this character go i think a lot of the stuff with star and sex is just like her finding her limits and and like seeing how far she can push her sexuality and what she can get out of it in a way that i think is very much informed by her youth and her lack of anything to lose and it's something that i think is you know we're all older and half of us are parents and you know we're a a lot more i think concerned with the danger than someone in her situation frankly would be because she does have that kind of like imperviousness that comes with youth that that belief that you can't be harmed and i think that the fact that that didn't turn into something ugly or violent is yeah one of the things i liked most about that film because i think that is something that young people do and have to do is like kind of navigate their own sexuality and their own limits and it can turn out bad but it doesn't always turn out bad and i mean with the scene with the band in the pickup truck she does come up against her hard limit Mm -hmm. you know she does come up against a situation that feels a lot darker and more threatening than the sequence with the texans in the open car and it still doesn't go nearly as as badly as it could have gone you know she's still both of those scenes they're very both are very long scenes with quite a bit of build-up and and andrea arnold is is playing that threat for attention it is she is extending it i mean just because nothing materializes i i don't I didn't get a safe feeling at all from from this movie. I got a feeling in both of those scenes that they were going to go to a really bad place. They didn't get there, but it didn't, you know, I didn't feel like Arnold couldn't potentially take him to that, that, to that place. Add, add to that the truck driver who plays a Bruce Springsteen song, and that, it's a very, it turns out to be a very kindly person, but, but there's at least three scenes in here that feel like rape scenes waiting to happen. Mm-hmm. And, and yeah, I, I don't know. I never sank into a, a sense of safety with this movie. <laughs> I'm just so aware of the fact that you guys are fathers of daughters right now. Yeah, well, you know. <laughs> it's felt like a child in peril movie tactics that were being deployed and scenes like that. But I mean, you know, just as they don't need to be teenage girls to get some of what we got out of the film. I like I don't need to have a seven year old daughter at home to feel the sexual threat in this movie. There's a lot of sexual no, threat. No, just the way movie. you said that you felt comfortable at a certain point. I just I, I, I'm just surprised to hear that based on the feeling that I think the film, you know, I'll, 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 I'll just put it out there. Like when I was 19 and 20, I put myself in some situations that could have gone terribly wrong and it was, and they didn't. And that was, and I was lucky, but it was also like part of growing up and learning experience and learning about all these things we're talking about her learning. And I think that is why I appreciated those scenes because kids do dumb stuff and, yeah, I don't yeah. find the scenes. I'll, I don't find the scenes objectionable. I just was kind of hung up on what Tasha was. Uh, I, I, I'm saying, like, I, I think you are bringing your kind of personal fears to that scene in a way that the, 
fears that the character is not bringing to that scene. I think in some ways the opinions are contrast most sharply are yours and mine because I, I feel like there's a sense of escape and freedom that you're sensing from this movie. And to me, this movie was one her trading one form of sadness for another uh, repeatedly throughout the film. I, I never got the sense that the world was opening up for her. I felt like she was just trading in one bad situation for, for one that was potentially going to take her someplace even worse. And that was, to me, it was two and a half hours of that feeling, which is not necessarily, it doesn't make it a bad film, but it, it, it is a very different film from what you're describing, frankly. Because I don't want to get bogged down too much in one topic because there's so much of this movie. Here's something I was thinking about earlier that just kind of as a thought experiment. I'd like each of you to just pull out like one scene of the movie. What stands out most strongly to you? Like when you think of this movie, don't think about it too hard. What's the first scene that you think of? Probably the cowboy scene um, where uh, and, and the subsequent uh, love scene between uh, the two leads uh, after that with the Mousy Star song. Scott? The the scene I get stuck on is the one I, I just detested, which was the scene where she comes upon the, this poor family and the, the girl <laughs> recites Dead Kennedy lyrics and she goes to the store and buys them food. It's just the psychology of that was just so plainly laid out and it's just like how in the world, in the in the year 2016, there's a, what of a six-year-old girl going to know the lyrics to a, to a Dead Kennedy song. It's just the whole thing felt so absurdly contrived to me. That's what stood out. That, that, oh, that, my God. I, you, know, you know nothing about children living in poverty. Genevieve, yeah. you're, you're clenching your fists and waving them at Scott. But before you hit but him, why, I want like, you to answer the did, question. Like, like yeah. that, that reference didn't, didn't irritate you? That, you know, oh, good Lord, and then, no. And then, then the mother coming out, she's got the... It's just so... My, it's, it's, like a, it's so like movie of the week. It's so bad. My cousin teaches grade school, a, a variety of grades school and kindergarten and pre-k kids in poverty and them knowing a dead kennedy song is uh, like the least of uh the unlikelihood uh that she's really? been exposed dead to. kennedy's early 80s punk yeah, rock I mean, is in, still still thriving if, and if that's if that's what the parents listen to and or an no older filters. sibling listens to or like yeah. a like a like a 50 year old's <laughs> exactly. It's like it's like this, that is a reference. That is a really. There are some, you, are, you guys are assuming that music only exists in the era in which it's. No, but this is I don't necessarily see it as a flaw. It may just be a part of the design of the film, but but it is a matter. I felt like a lot of ideas of American music were kind of grafted onto this. Like right. I don't think you, there's line dancing to a 1988 yeah. Steve Earle song, yeah. uh, Mazzy Star, the sort of obscure uh, late period Bruce Springsteen song. Oh, both, God, both, I'm, both I'm just like. Both, my Go, hair both this elderly elderly <laughs> truck driver and star no i i don't care this i mean you know it's implausible i think that's part of the film that's fine you know i guess it's what you're objecting to is no more implausible than a lot of the other musical choices in this film. okay yeah, let's get back to the music in a minute genevieve scene the final scene where she lets the, the turtle go i loved it so much i don't even remember that it, what it, okay what happens so throughout the whole movie, Jake, Shia LaBeouf's character, is giving Star gifts. He's mm-hmm. constantly giving her presents. And like she is so excited for presents from him. And, and at the beginning, she's literally like clinging on to him, like saying, give me my present, give me my present. And at the end, as she has finally like kind of exercised herself of the presence of Jake, he gives her a turtle. He gives her a present. And it's a present that is, is like so loaded because it is from nature and like she we see again and again with her like freeing bugs she is like so connected to nature and her dream is to live in a trailer among the trees you know like she is she wants to be in the world in its more or less natural state and he gives her this present of a turtle and she lets it go she doesn't accept his present and then she follows the turtle into the water and i'm like getting and choked up talking about it i love that ending so much <laughs> oh wow okay yeah <laughs> now i'm getting choked up too yes the i am now remembering like, like that actual visual element that shot but it completely eluded me but i find it funny because the scene that i would have called out is specifically the one where she's storming away from him after the sale that she's ruined mm-hmm. and she's like in a fury at him and she's completely rejecting everything that he is and does and then he mentions that he had a present for her and she just she goes ballistic she mm-hmm. falls over him she claws at him it doesn't seem like she's kidding like she's not being kittenish about wanting the thing that he, that he has for her it's like she's a very poorly trained puppy that's seen the treat in his hand mm-hmm. and like she can't control herself and that that scene just said so much to me about just what a reckless id she is 
and how few filters she has and who she is. And I, I just I found it fascinating. Yeah, and, and the turtle scene at the end doesn't work without that earlier scene mm-hmm. and, and other scenes similar to it. This is a long movie, and there is certainly some repetition, but I enjoy the repetition. Is that, is that right along with, uh, I wouldn't call it a baptism of sorts, but it is sort of a baptism of sorts? Yeah, she's sure. in yeah, the water and she comes up, yeah. but I guess it's under her own, under her control, because she's mm-hmm. been pushed in the pool before, and yeah. now, now she sort of can come up. And I guess that's the one you know, moment, I mean, Keith was talking about her being led in, into one sad situation after another, and I guess that's the one little moment of self-actualization you, you, you end up getting, right, at the very end. Yeah, but it made me sad, too. I felt like this is someone who who was living under the illusion that she had found some sort of freedom that wasn't actually out there. I mean, that, you know, she's still stuck with this magazine crew. Uh, <laughs> you still... say stuck with. Like, she uh... she's happy to be there. Like, that scene in the van with that American Honey song is playing, and she's, like, looking at all the... She's, for the first time, she's seeing and noticing all the other girls in this crew, and she's happy there. Like, to your mind, it's a terrible situation, but I think it's great to her, you know? And I, I think the movie does a good job, at least it did a good job for me, of kind of selling the pleasurable aspects of this lifestyle, this very prime... I mean, there's a very primal vibe to the to the magazine crew, what with their constant fighting and their jumping around the fire. And, you know, it, they're almost like a roving caveman uh, clan in, in a lot of ways, you know, which I think is a very pointed portrayal, specifically in terms of what I was talking about, is Star being connected to the natural world as a character. But yeah, my point is that I don't think this is a bad situation for her. I think she is now in this situation on her own terms, and that is a victory. But she I mean, is not in control of that situation and is in a tenuous spot at all times because of the Riley Keough character who will just simply drop a kid off and leave him or her there if the kid is not making bank. So, so there's But she can the- make bank. She always gets the money when she needs to get the money because she's a self-sufficient character. She's a self-sufficient character, but she's a self-sufficient character with a major weak spot. <laughs> yes. Because she gets the money and then she immediately hands it off to the guy that she's infatuated with. Yes. Genevieve, you want to go on that topic? <laughs> yeah. My topic is, hey, infatuation. Um, we've already kind of danced around this subject a lot, like magazine sellers around a fire. Um <laughs> Nice. Nice metaphor. (laughs) Yes. Both of these movies have a central love story, and both of them are a little one-sided, or at least imbalanced. One of my favorite details in American Honey, and this speaks to Sasha Lane's performance, which I think was very good, is the way that whenever Jake is around, Star's eyes immediately go to him. And when he's not around, she's always casting about looking for him and visibly upset when he's not there. I think this speaks to a very specific type of young love slash infatuation where the person you have a crush on sort of becomes your whole world, the eyes through which you see yourself. It's there in my own private Idaho, too, but there's kind of a different vibe to it, due in part to the differences between Mike and Scott's sexual preferences and the fact that they're living in a world of hustlers where there's a performative aspect when it comes to their professed sexuality. The film avoids taking too strong a stance on their relationship for most of the film until that scene around the fire that, as it turns out, was maybe not intended to be the scene it turned out to be. But it's so important because it's where Mike professes his love for Scott and Scott responds with this really loaded hug that doesn't really affirm or reject what Mike wants. It was just really reminiscent to me of the way Jake plays with Star's affections, like possibly subconsciously in American Honey. The way there's like an emotional power differential baked into the central romantic or not relationship. Personally, I associate this type of relationship very strongly with youth, that moment when you're on the cusp of adulthood and figuring out who you are and what you want and need in a partner. But that may just be because, as I said, I've had similar experiences in my own youth. So I kind of want to get your guys' take on the relationships between these two pairs and where they fall on the destructive versus instructive spectrum and just what emotions they conjure up for you. I don't think of either of them as destructive relationships. I think of them as dead-end relationships, mm-hmm. that in both cases, the protagonist needs to to get over and move on because they're just they're batting their head against the same wall over and over, and it's not getting in them anywhere. I mean, we kind of glossed over this, Keith, but I, I do think that you're very right in saying that, that we were hearing the same tune played over and over, like the same motif in different notes. And I think the process of Star coming to Jake over and over and 
over wanting something that she's never going to get out of him is a very strong part of this movie. I feel like there's enough different iterations in it that it didn't get redundant to me. But I think the repetitive nature of it is very much how this kind of relationship goes. And the whole movie is about her basically coming to the point of getting over it. I don't think Mike in My Own Private Idaho does ever make it to that point. He isn't really given the choice because Scott moves away faster than than he can follow. But I think in both cases, the the problem is just there's nowhere for these relationships to go. Yeah, I mean, that sounds about right. I think there's an upbeat note to the end of American Honey. It's, it's that she seems to finally be over him. And the tragedy of my own private Idaho is Mike will never be over Scott and may, you know, may not have any life away from him or beyond this, this very reckless and, and, and vulnerable existence. And there's something too about an American honey about her having to come to terms with the fact that she isn't special or that is emphasized to her that, that there have been other girls in the past. Uh, and, and I think that's, that's a fairly insightful way of dealing with the gulf between uh, someone who has little to no romantic experience and someone who has quite a bit is is that, that distance and experience and, and feeling special and engaged and infatuated. There's an intensity to that sort of first time that cannot be repeated later on. And so they're coming at it from a very different angle and from, from Jake's perspective of a, a fairly exploitative angle. And, um, you know, it's, it's a definitely a crushing element of the film. I think in both cases, it's interesting that it is a romantic triangle. There's a third party in both cases who's kind of superior in in all practical ways. In the case of My Own Private Idaho, there's a character there who's actually Scott's preferred gender. And the fact that she's attractive and available and apparently able to move to the States at the drop of a hat <laughs> and that she cleans up well and looks good in society, you know, all of those things are benefits. Um, but mostly she's She's there and she's kind of what he's looking for. In the case of American Honey, Riley Keough is in control and has the money and has the means, has the resources, has, you know, this entire troop working for her. And for Jake, she's not necessarily a better choice emotionally or morally, but she's got the things that he wants. And I think in both cases, the protagonists don't really stand a chance. This isn't directly related to my topic, but I do want to pick up on something Scott said because it relates to the scene that he hated so much, mm -hmm. uh, the idea of her realizing she's not special. And I think like that's what that scene with her and the kids was all about, her traveling all this way and winding up in a place that is exactly like the place she left. And she is compelled to care for these two kids that are just like the kids that she left behind. And I, that scene really, really worked for me because it was like the other side of what you're talking about uh, with her and Jake not realizing that she's not special, like realizing that her pain isn't unique and she can't necessarily escape it just by going to a different place. Well, and, and there's also there's a motivation of guilt too because yeah. she left those two ki those kids behind. Yeah. Uh, and, she was, and the she mother is a in the mother in that situation. Right. No, is I a mean, that, that was a problem. You know? But again, yeah, those all those connections were for to me, to me way way too clear. Like everything about that scene was very contrived in the way that it kind of fit with uh, her backstory and what she was coming from. And you know, I mean, obviously, I, I have specific objection <laughs> to the musical reference yeah. there, but it just and also the film frequently tips into cliche. You know, the, the whole you know, Confederate flag bikini thing. And it's just like it felt like a very I think there are elements of, of the film that are, uh, go way, way too, too far. All right. Well, moving on to a, a separate topic that's actually a very similar topic. One of the things that struck me most about that scene uh, towards the end with Star and the two kids is the way it pulls Star back into the world of poverty that mm -hmm. she consciously left behind. And that's my topic. So it seems like a transition point. That scene worked for me fine because it was so expressly about the situation that she finds herself in where she she has no money. I mean, everybody in these two movies, except Scott in My Own Private Idaho, is living in extreme poverty, is fighting to get by from day to day. And so much of the action of both of these movies that we see is about the limited choices that come with poverty, the limited resources, the limited abilities throughout the day, and the way people find to kill time, to entertain themselves, to live their lives, um, to get by on very little, little resources and very little little education 
very little prospects. The people in American Honey do it with drugs. They do it with alcohol. They do it with music. It's one of the pleasures that comes more or less free to them over their radios. You know, they sing and dance together. It becomes this sort of celebratory thing. The people in My Own Private Idaho do it with this sort of merry pranksterism that's very Shakespearean, but that's all about using each other for entertainment, uh, sometimes in a very rough kind of fashion. But it's really all about making your own fun in both of these cases. Now, Star comes from a place of extreme poverty where she's trying to take care of these little children in this broken down house and get by. And it's a big deal when she moves off to join this van and is able to claim that she has a job. She's able to pretend that she's not just getting by by dumpster diving. She's actually working. She's joined the working class. But she's willing to give it up in the end to use the the bounty that she's gotten to help people who she sees as in the same situation she's in. And in the same way, Genevieve noted that she frees the turtle, but she also gives away the gift that Jake gave her. She's become less and less attached to any sort of, not just gifts, but material things, which is really important for somebody who's grown up in such a situation of privation. I'm just, I'm curious how you guys see both of these films interacting with poverty. Scott, I get the feeling that you think this is an unrealistic view or possibly a fetishistic, cliched, like overplayed. No, no, no. I have that specific objection to that scene, of, of course, that I've articulated. But poverty is a you know important theme in the film, and it's a theme that is. I think I've, am I the only one who's seen other Andrea Arnold films? Uh, Fish seen, Tank, um, Wuthering Heights. I haven't seen Fish Tank, but I've seen Wuthering Heights. Wuthering Heights. Okay. I mean, we, Wuthering Heights is a, an unusual adaptation, or notable for how um, austere the conditions are, how mm-hmm. how how mud caked and, and desperate these characters are, almost. Uh, feral in a way. In Fish Tank, it takes place entirely in a housing project. So so it's something that is on Andrea Arnold's mind, and it's not really lost on me that we need a British filmmaker to come to America to show us things that we don't see in American movies, too. So uh, it's meaningful in that respect, too, that, that, that she's able to kind of point out to uh, us these hidden places that are in plain sight. One of the other things that just strikes me about American Honey is, again, it comes back to the turtle, Genevieve. <laughs> you keep seeing like the, the van full of magazine crew kids, they... they adopt or steal depending on what how you want to look at it a dog dog. the girl in fish tank uh, keeps trying to rescue this horse there's the one kid on the magazine crew in american honey with a sugar glider there's this feeling that in an environment where they have very little to their names they still they have that wendy and lucy thing going on where they can find space and time in their lives for animals because there's something that's going to love them no matter how poor they are and all of the people that we see in uh, American Honey seem to have that kind of like connection to animals. I didn't find it fetishistic um, at all, but I do feel there's a little bit, the scene with the chicken at the beginning, the way the camera lingered on, on this chicken that found in the dumpster that, that had been going on the floor and been dropped on the ground. Uh, there's a little bit of maybe laying on a little bit thick here in the beginning. Am I, am I wrong with that? The chicken thing went on too long. The chicken thing was very gummo. Yes. <laughs> you're right. Yeah. That's exactly what I was thinking of was, was gummo. We almost paired this with kids. which uh, Gummo would have been would even have, even better, I gummo, think. Gummo. Yeah, but mean watching gummo again. I know. That's, that's true. Yeah. <laughs> yep. That's that true, would, but, that but, would be but, my objection. But, uh, or, or we could have done trash humpers as well. True. <laughs> Uh, yeah i can pass i mean did you did you feel a discomfort about the the poverty in either of these films in terms of like how these characters are are living or being forced to live it's interesting because in in some ways my own private has been more overtly stylized film but in I also felt like the approach to the way it portrayed its characters was a little more naturalistic in some ways than this, which was always kind of in your face with the, here is the, the garish costume, here are the, the stinky braids, here's us singing the song at the top of our lungs. It, it almost seemed a little bit foregrounding the items these characters uh, wore and, and the pop culture they locked onto. Uh, it's a little, a little forceful in the way it presented it. I don't know. I, there's just such like a romantic strain to American Honey that I, I feel that its portrayal of poverty kind of plays into. And I, I guess you can interpret that as, as fetishizing it. But I, I just read it as these characters finding joy and finding connection in circumstances that we assume joy and connection can't happen. And 
I respect the way that American Honey makes their lives look appealing. And I, I, I know that maybe not all of us at the table share that, but I did feel that way. And I did feel like I understand why this is an appealing way to live, even though on the surface, it seems like it would be terrible to not have any money or not to have a home. But the suggestion seems to be through the, this character of Star, who like is rejecting this material world, is that maybe you don't need that to have a life in this world. You're going to insist on seeing this as romantic, and I find, <laughs> yeah, <laughs> okay. I don't. I. I mean, I don't think of it as romantic per se. But when you look at my own private Idaho and Mike stealing the cocaine off of Bob's sleeping body, and then <laughs> desperately trying to scrape it up off the the bed bedstead and shove it into his nose. That's a much less romanticized view than, say, the sequence in American Honey, where they're all dancing and singing together to E-40's choices. Yup. Nope. 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 Yup. I love that sequence so much. And I, I mean, I think Genevieve's right. This is a really competitive environment where the characters are actively encouraged to beat on each other for failing to sell. And yet they find camaraderie in it. And I, I just sort of though, I mean, there's, there's all these talk about characters who have been abandoned and, and they're, they're, you know, it's almost like they become non-persons in some ways. I found that kind of chilling. Well, do, do we see anyone actually get abandoned? No, but there's talk of there's, but right. It, it's, it's a threat, but, but I don't we, know that it's necessarily, it's been realized. In, I think it's been realized in the past. Yeah, it, but it, I don't know. I don't buy that. It's like something that could happen at any time. Mm. I do. Okay. I mean, I mean, I, she says as much. I, yeah, I buy that it's a real. I threat. think. I think it's her to a certain extent. I mean, it could certainly happen, but I think it's her posturing to a certain extent. I mean, I think that for the threat to work, somebody has to believe sure. it's true. So it has to have happened at some point. But Keith, you were talking about how my own private Idaho is much more stylized than American Honey, and that actually takes us to your topic, which is style. How does style play into these two films? I probably should add a caveat there because my own private Idaho is more overtly stylized. It's several different styles in the film going on, sometimes from scene to scene, from from these really naturalistic scenes of the street kids talking about their horrible experiences to these these sex scenes that that are are extremely fantastic and, and movie-like and, and, and surreal in a way to other cutaways to the, the house that, that puzzles Tasha so much. And, and Not anymore. Orgasm House. Fixed it. The Orgasm House and so on. American Honey is more naturalistic in many ways, but at the same time, there's never a sense that anything is out of place. There's so many shots of the the sun sort of lingering at just the right spot on the horizon and creating lens flare or sometimes a little magic hour. There's it's a very for all sort of handheld approach to to filmmaking. It's still very much a stylized film. There's also the scenes of the, the hand job that doesn't quite happen by the oil fire. Um, this is not a found thing. This is a constructed thing. So it, it is. It kind of speaks to the divide that Genevieve and I have about this film. Sorry to keep dragging you back into in, in, into this, but no, it's, but it's not my fault. You're wrong. Word, it, <laughs> it is definitely this this. Um, you know, they they're on the road. They're finding these things, and but uh, it is presenting the most romantic view of it possible. But I, I cannot buy into the romance, no no matter what. And in some ways, that is a function of style. Yeah, and I think the style is where I get a lot of the the romance. So I, I don't really know how to <laughs> respond to that other saying that I disagree. And I think that the way Arnold shoots the movie has a lot to do with making aspects of this life look appealing. Yeah, it's often quite lovely. And but I found it. I mean, I don't want to live in this world. I, I, I did nothing <laughs> about this appeal to me. And I felt ultimately there there was an an irony at the heart of the film that that maybe it didn't tease out enough. You know, it's free. Freedom working for this tyrannical hypercapitalist who who runs this thing like a petty dictatorship. It, it's it's not. I don't see it as a kind of freedom. I see all these kids heading toward bad ends. So, what do you make of the way that the two sex scenes between Star and Jake are filmed? Did that stand out to you at all? There's the, there, there's the, the one that was very dewy, Mazzy Star, and there was a more naturalistic one on the ground, right? Yeah, but they but they are both again kind of shot in nature with, and they're both at magic hour mm -hmm. and there's th this very romantic is the only real word for it, the, the way it is shot. And I, I think it just really speaks to the connection that star feels to 
Jake in this moment, but also the way that she is connected to nature. And I know I keep saying that and mm -hmm. it, it seems trite the more I say it, but I think it is like a very strong aspect of that character. And I think the way Arnold, through the way she shoots those scenes, is kind of like conflating the sexual pleasure with stars, just like pleasure with being in the world and being a part of the world. I can buy that. I do agree that Arnold maybe focuses a little too much on shots of sunsets, shots of insects, shots of waving grass. There were places where I thought, you know, for the most part, I did not feel the length of this film. But sometimes when we were looking in the environment, just momentarily, I would. And that kind of, of environmental gloss feels pretty strongly conflicting with my own private Idaho, where at the points where you kind of go off into that gauzy nature, it's so specifically tied to what's going on mentally in Mike's head, you know, to his, his blackout sequences, to his home flashbacks. And it just, it feels, I guess, both more purposeful and less digressive, but there's also so much less of it. I feel like Gus Van Sant gets the same concept across, but he does it with like a lot much tighter editing. Well, the difference, too, is that he's just, uh, Van Sant is showing you such a huge range of textures and styles, and, and uh, it feels, it has a more experimental quality, um, though I don't, I don't mind the overt stylization of American Honey. I, I, I mind it, you know, and, and, as, a, and as a Terrence Malick per person, right. I, any shots, you, <laughs> any, any extraneous shots of Magic Hour and, and nature are, are not going to bother me terribly much it was just there are, are scenes where it, it's a little much and i mean the, there's a lot of a little muchness to this to this movie i'm thinking specifically of the cliche of all kind of art films about poverty where fireworks come out like there's always having with beaten beasts of the southern wild too and many others i'm sure just like it's just such an easy thing just like they can have these sort of backyard firecrackers and fireworks and they're dancing around and everything's in slow motion and it's just it's just so poetic and i just i can't it's such a cliche i can't say <laughs> but, but then but I then i like that i have the image of scott like every fourth of july just like screwing up his face like <laughs> you're having too much fun you're such a cliche no, I, don't even, just... I don't even like fireworks that much but i i do i don't agree with you but like i can understand that that view but i just want to point out like the next scene after that that's good is like the fireworks through the yeah. birthday cake you know and it's yeah. just like the complete opposite of that majesty no, that, that i that i liked it, that i liked but, it, but i think like the whole film is kind of about scott likes it yeah. yeah if it's depressing scott well, likes I, it. I just i think it's if it's new i like it if it's <laughs> well, not if it's something i've seen a thousand times and, and roll my eyes at i don't like it <laughs> I, I think like the whole film though it, it, its style is so concerned with that contrast between the like epically beautiful and the mundane and the the ugliness of civilization compared with the beauty of the natural world, the way that she shoots it. Yeah, well, the striving for the transcendent, <laughs> that sort of thing. Well, I mean, you kind of need to strive for the transcendent when you're living in such a right. an uncontrolled and ugly situation so yeah. much of the time. Yeah. I hadn't really processed the degree to which Star is overtly connected to nature. And I mean, to some degree, I feel like they all are just by the fact that like they're all kind of like young wild animals. Mm -hmm. They've all got that both that physical grace and just that animalistic kind of seeking after pleasure that is kind of the province of, you know, the the young teenager out on the road. But I do think that uh, Arnold's gauziness tends to to play towards that. Well, Scott, you seem uh, like a little obsessed with the the aspects of the film that are cliched, that are things we've seen over and over. Mm -hmm. But I think your topic was the other America. You wanted to talk about things that are in this movie that we don't see. Yeah, over in and both over. movies, really. I mean, one of the great strengths of both My Own Private Idaho and American Honey is they show us parts of the country that we rarely see in American movies, much less mainstream movies. You know, in the Van Sant, we travel from the parks and flop houses of, of Portland to the rural expanses of Idaho. And we also get a glimpse of a gay subculture that didn't that uh, we didn't access terribly often at the time and, and never this artfully. Um, American Honey takes us to red state America uh, and the people uh, we see are often white, working class, poor, uh, particularly as the film departs from the suburban enclaves and, and visits states where ordinary people are living below the poverty line. I said this of certain women too by Kelly Reichert is that you know, indie films often give us a great sense of what Brooklyn looks like, but they don't venture out into the Middle West all, all that often. American Honey gives you a sense of how enormous this country is, despite the impression in the Internet age that, that we're all bound tightly together. I mean, America is still such a huge 
empty and very dramatic country of, of a lot of powerful contrasts. And, and because we were so obsessed and really almost maybe for practical reasons with cities and, and people shooting in cities and talking about their city lives, that we're just missing this huge swath of American in uh, at least... Um, you know, for all of its faults, American Honey is trying to comprehend that world in a way that, that few films do. And I mean, I think it's, it comes, again, from the outsider view, from not being an American filmmaker, making films in an American system, and thus kind of having a sense of, like, these are the things you talk about, and these are the ways you talk about them. Mm-hmm. I mean, that goes for Arnold, but Gus Van Sant, coming from a a more experimental film bent, and making things very much on his own terms, given that he was talking about a subculture that mainstream America wasn't interested in, they both end up with kind of the freedom to talk about things without worrying about traditionally or historically or in an acceptable mainstream fashion, like how these things are discussed. I think also, to some degree, my own private Idaho is kind of a time capsule. I mean, you'll see like what downtown Portland and, and the the places that, that uh, the subculture hung out uh, looked like then. But I think distorted sense of what people listen to aside, if you put American Honey in a vault and pulled it out in 20 years, you're going to get a really fascinating portrait of what certain swaths of America look like and, and at this time. Uh, and I think that's a lot of that is function is just showing up and shooting, which is uh, a, great, a great strength of the film. And I, I think that this idea kind of plays into what I was talking about in the previous episode when I asked how My Own Private Idaho is a road movie because this aspect that you're talking about like seeing parts of America that we don't necessarily see and just reveling in a variety of different places like I kind of get that in My Own Private Idaho but not nearly to the extent that I get it in American Honey. Yeah I I think their their goals are just different. Obviously there's a lot of time (laughs) Yeah. Well, and, and American Honey just this. covers such a broader swath of the country, mm-hmm. and it, it's a lot less specific about the places it is. I mean, my own private Idaho takes place in three different cities and a stretch of road, basically, you know, and, and those are like the three places and we just jump from one to the other, whereas American Honey is more about kind of experiencing the, the traversing of this huge country. Sometimes in real time. I mean, I don't really don't mean it as a slight, but it's like there's, there's like, we're going to drive here and we're going to be with you every step of the way too. And, and uh, Through the entirety of that Yep, Nope song. Yep. <laughs> nope. <laughs> Actually, I don't think they play that in the car. But. Did you like this movie? Yep. Did you guys like this movie? Yeah. Oh. Qual- 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 qualified, yeah. There's no qualified, qualified yeah, yep. this song. I, I felt like it was, ultimately it was, uh, here, I'm going to, instead of nope, I'm going to say this. I'm going to say it, it felt like its masterpiece ambitions were undone by some elements that really worked against it for me. Coming up soon, E40's new song, <laughs> Choices, its masterpiece elements were undermined somewhat by the choices made in this movie. Yep. My Own Private Idaho is available on Blu-ray and DVD from the Criterion Collection, and it can be rented digitally via various streaming services. American Honey is still rolling slowly across the heartland, just <laughs> like its characters. And we'll be right back with our usual recommendation segment, Your Next Picture Show. Finally, it's time to catch each other up on films or film-related items we've seen in the interim since our last podcast. We call it Your Next Picture Show in the hopes it'll put some interesting choices on your radar. All right, Keith, you want to kick us off? Sure. I had a movie picked out that I saw recently, but it's gonna, it, it'll keep. It actually doesn't come out for a couple of weeks. So I'm going to move on to probably my, the only window to recommend uh, the film Winter Kills, which I haven't seen in a couple of years. But, so bear with me if I don't get all the details right. But it's directed by William Rickert, who plays Bob Pigeon in the film My Own Private Idaho. Who's mostly, he acted, but he's also, um, and he's still alive, also a director. He had recently directed River Phoenix in a, in a film called A Night in the Life of Jimmy Reardon, which was originally called Aren't You Even Gonna Kiss Me Goodbye, and uh, was apparently taken out of his hands, and he was very upset about this. And if you recall, Scott, at one point in the mid-90s, like years later, he sent his cut of that film to everyone in the Chicago Film Critics Association wow. on VHS, I believe. I wasn't, um, I wasn't around at that Maybe time, not. But... Maybe you weren't. Maybe it was a little later. I thought we were there. Anyway. No. It's probably best known for a film called Winter Kills. It came out in 1979, which is this very odd conspiracy film. I mean, the 70s were full of paranoid conspiracy thrillers. And this is kind of almost a black comedy version of one of those. Um, it had a very troubled production history. At one point, it was shut down and 
to keep it going, uh, Rickard and, and Jeff Bridgers, who was the star of the film, actually made another movie called American Success Company to finance <laughs> what the money it would take to finish Winter Kills. But this movie has everyone in it. Uh, Jeff Bridges, John Huston, Anthony Hopkins, uh, sorry, Anthony Perkins, Julian Hayden, Elizabeth Taylor in a cameo, Tashira Mufune, because why not? Mia Farrow's sister's in it. Um, yeah. And it's this really weird almost you know caricatured riff on kennedy conspiracy theories i remember it going to some very odd places but basically throwing every sort of strange undercurrent of conspiratorial thinking that was floating around in the 60s and 70s and into one film it's uh it's it's quite fun i'd actually like to making me want to revisit it to just talk wow, about sounds it fascinating what a cast hmm is it available? Well, it maybe out of print, but I have a DVD of it. So everyone, everyone in this room is welcome to borrow it. And, and if you're listening, I, I, I don't know what to tell you. Come, come, come to my house. We'll watch it together. It'll be fun. Come to the Chicago Podcast Festival and for 45 minutes, we will just play the first 45 minutes of that movie and then send everybody home. Scott, what do you have? I have a, a film called Peter and the Farm. Uh, this is a documentary that comes out the first week of November in theaters and online or digital. It's day and date release, so no matter where you live, you can you can see it. Uh, it was one of the best films I saw at True False last year. Um, it's about Peter Dunning, who for over 35 years has worked, you know, this 187-acre. Uh, farm in rural Vermont, and he is the only one there. He is working this farm, and it's this storybook pretty farm, you know, with the sheep crossing over the bridge, and it's just, and it's uh, this gorgeous rural enclave in Vermont. But the documentary sort of gets into the existential hell of actually tending to it. You know, Dunning knows that the farm cannot survive without him, but it's difficult and isolating work, and it fuels a drinking problem that flares up in, in a very serious way later in the film. Uh, and he's just a fascinating character. He's very salty, sarcastic, really funny. He's art. He's artistic. He paints. He he has this really dark uh, history that he gets into, and he has a strong connection to the land that is both both brings him peace and, and misery. Uh, you know, at alternating times. Um, and I think it, w- it will really give you something to think about next time uh, you're at the farmers market. And you're wondering how this, how this uh, piece of uh, piece of meat or fruit got got to you farm to table, and uh, perhaps the harrowing story behind that. Um, uh, it's called Peter and the Farm, and it's just got a real grit to it. It's like a really, it really gets into this the details of of running this this farm um, and, and in a very old fashioned way. So uh, I highly recommend it, Peter I, and the Farm. I do prefer for all my food to come with grit and harrowing. <laughs> yeah, well, I mean, you can wash the grit out. out. Yeah, can you wash the harrowing out? Yeah, wash the. Yeah. Uh, well, you know, you don't have. I'm just saying, you have to think about it a little bit and then enjoy. Ear of corn. That, he's uh, <laughs> that yeah. does sound really fascinating. It's really good. It's really good. But uh, what about you, Tasha? What, what do you have? Um, just short and sweet. Uh, I have not been watching a lot of movies because there's so much TV I've got to watch for work right now. But I'm going to recommend a couple of articles that you, you can't watch a movie at work unless you're one of us. You can't necessarily watch TV <laughs> wow, at work. Rub it in. <laughs> You know, humble brag. Uh, But you can read these articles probably sitting at your desk, um, and they're really, really interesting. They're also long. So if you have a boring job and a computer, um, you can occupy yourself a little bit with this. One is a New York Times uh, magazine story from 2007. Uh, It's titled, For Youths, A Grim Tour on Magazine Cruise. And it's the article that inspired Andrea Arnold in American Mm. Honey. It's an actual investigative long-form journalism piece about what it's like being on a magazine crew, who runs them, how they make their money, how they profit off kids, how they discard kids. Um, it's also about investigating the, the systemic violence uh, that was endemic to apparently some of these magazine crews as a manner of discipline. It sounds an awful lot like some of the military hazing stories that we've heard uh, over the decades. So it's it's really in-depth. It's really well-researched. There are a lot of stories from people actually in Inside the kind of cruise that you're seeing in American Honey. And it's just, it's a really fascinating, immersive, long form story. So, yes, the New York Times Magazine for Youths, a grim tour on magazine cruise. There's also an article from Interview Magazine that's, I think it's just called My Own Private Idaho, but it's a conversation with Keanu Reeves and River Phoenix after the movie was made. And it's pretty much, it's it's just the two of them riffing off each other with the interviewer occasionally poking them. If you, if River Phoenix's death left that kind of 
pop culture hole that you feel when someone dies too young and you you wonder like what what would have become of them what could they have become this may turn the knife a little bit because he just he comes across as so bright and yet so naive so young and so energized uh keanu reeves comes across as really really smart and engaged and uh, methody and, and thorough. But the two of them debunk some of the stories about behind the scenes at My Own Private Idaho. They talk about their their method. They talk about hanging out with street hustlers and not acknowledging that they were researching uh, movie star roles, just kind of living the street life for a while. They talk about working with uh, Van Sant in general, working with each other. Um, they talk about the things they were told about how they were going to ruin their careers by playing gay people. People and <laughs> they have some profanity for anybody who would say that to them. Mm-hmm. It's really colorful and it's a lot of fun. Uh, Interview Magazine, find it online, my own private Idaho article. Genevieve, what about you? Okay, so we're recording this episode the day after the final presidential debate, which I chose not to watch because, <laughs> frankly, it just feels too traumatic to do so at this point. Uh, so last night, I really needed some counter-programming to distract from the mess I knew was playing out on television. So I decided to check in with a movie I'd heard some good things about from some critics I admire, among them our friend Noel Murray. And, hey, I, Noel. and I watched Jonathan Demme's Justin Timberlake and the uh-huh. Tennessee Kids on Netflix. Uh, this is a concert film that was shot at the final show in Las Vegas of Timberlake's two-year-long 2020 tour. And oh man, was it just what I needed to distract myself from the election and sort of affirm that there's still some good in the world. Uh, Regardless of how you feel about Timberlake's music, uh, I'm kind of Timberlake agnostic, but this movie is a good reminder that he has a lot of hits. Um, It's just a really sharp, well-wrought piece of filmmaking. Personally, I think that shooting an effective concert doc is kind of at the highest difficulty level of things a director can do just in terms of managing coverage and finding interesting shots and working within all the technical aspects of a really large scale production like this is. And Demi really delivers here as he's done in the past with Stop Making Sense, of course. Visually, this is a really absorbing and technically accomplished film. There are a couple sequences involving lasers. It made me wish I had seen this film in 3D IMAX instead of on my TV screen. Um, But Timberlake is also a real draw. He's a consummate showman. He shares a stage with a really large band who all get a lot of screen time and a small army of background singers and dancers. And it just feels like he's conducting this amazing party on stage. It's this sort of pure, distilled entertainment vibe, and it's really finely wrought through Demi's lens. And it's just a really great shot of good vibes and fun times, which is exactly what I needed last night, and I think we all need from time to time. So Justin Timberlake and the Tennessee Kids, it's a Netflix exclusive, so it should be streaming there more or less indefinitely. Uh, I'd recommend watching it on a very big screen with a good sound system and an open heart. <laughs> oh, it's, not, it's, it's totally on the top of my list of things to see. Man, nobody does... Because you're a Justin films. Timberlake super fan? No, well, that's the thing. It's just like, I, I, I didn't realize, uh, it was, was it Toronto? And I, I didn't realize that Demi had directed it. I just knew this. there was a Justin Timberlake yeah. concert film. I was like, yeah. I heard, I heard the last album wasn't very good. So, uh, so I gave it a pass. And then, uh, of course, uh, people came back just thrilled with it. And there's just, you know, Demi is just prepared, you know? He, you know, he has a, a very strong defined aesthetic for how he shoots concert films and uh and he pl- he's collaborates very closely with the the person who's uh, you know, actually performing and yeah he you know, must he have a great result he must have followed tim like on this tour for a, a fairly long time mm-hmm. to just know some of the shots that uh he he was going to get during this concert yeah, given the degree to which concert films rely on personality and performance, the idea of loving a concert film where you don't necessarily love the artist, but you can still love the film, I mean, that really speaks to the director's skill. Mm-hmm, for sure. Well, thanks, guys. I guess while we're big upping Netflix as the source of all good things in our life, <laughs> I should also note that Andrea Arnold's Fish Tank is streaming on Netflix. Um, so for those of you that are not Keith and Scott that can't get enough of uh, Andrea Arnold, I'm looking at you, Genevieve. Uh, there's more of it waiting for you on Netflix. And that's it for this week's edition of The Next Picture Show. Our next episodes come out November 15th and 17th. Scott, what do we have lined up? Well, with uh, Barry Jenkins' Moonlight coming out to justifiable raves, uh, we're going to seize the opportunity to do an episode around my favorite movie theme, 
the unrequited love between two people kept apart by societal forces. <laughs> That's a long one, but there's a lot of movies that fall under that uh, banner that I adore. You love uh, pain so much. I do. Uh, so so exquisite. Um, Moonlight is about three stages in the life of Chiron, a young man who grows up in the Miami projects with a drug-addicted single mother. Chiron is gay, but he's slower to realize that than his peers, and when it comes time to pursue that desire, he faces a culture that powerfully resists its expression. The last third of the movie owes a great deal to Wong Kar Wai, specifically in The Mood for Love, about the love that develops between two married neighbors in 1962 Hong Kong. So cry along with us at two poetic stories about forbidden love. In the meantime, we'd love to hear your feedback on this week's discussion of My Own Private Idaho and American Honey and anything else film-related. We want to include your thoughts on future episodes of the show. You can leave a short voicemail at 773-234-9730 or email us at comments at nextpictureshow.net. Finally, before closing out this week's episode, where can we find everyone these days? Keith? You can find me at uprocks.com and on Twitter at kfips 3000 Scott? Uh, you can find me at the New York Times, Vulture, Variety, NPR, um, in various other publications. I, I'm also on Twitter at, at Scott underscore Tobias. Genevieve? And I'm at Vox.com, working with the culture team there. And you can find me on Twitter at Genevieve Kosky. You can find me at writing about film, TV, and other things at TheVerge.com. You can find me on Twitter at Tosh Robinson. You can stay updated on the Next Picture Show via Twitter at, at @nextpicturepod, via Facebook at facebook.com slash nextpictureshow, or by visiting nextpictureshow.net. And if you haven't already, please subscribe to the show on iTunes or Stitcher. And while you're there, think about rating and reviewing us. Every thumbs up helps us find new listeners and keeps the show going. Thanks to Colin the Animal Griffith for his assistance producing the show, and thanks to Delmark Records for providing recording space at their home base, Riverside Studios. The Next Picture Show is proud to be part of the Film Spotting family of podcasts and the Panoply Network. Please tune in next time, and please come see us at the Chicago Podcast Festival, November 19th. Steady as a preacher, free as a weed.